Hi everyone, I wanted to let you know that today's episode was recorded um, early on May 25th, hours before George Floyd was killed. I didn't feel comfortable releasing it last week. I didn't feel that it was appropriate on Thursday, as I usually do. I have spoken to Cameron about this episode and we've agreed to release it and we would like to share it with you all, but I did want to let you know that we don't address the events of the last two weeks. Hey Pete. Hey Mia, what's up? We're about to record an episode of Share the Load. Yes, we are. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the burden of daily life, how do our evolving views on identity and work determine how we share responsibility? I'm the host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in LA. And she's awesome. Oh, thank you. Can I tell you about the Patreon tiers? Why, yes, you can. Let's give our listeners a great ad experience. All right, I'll try. The first tier is $5 a month, which gets you discount codes and early access to my online classes. For 20 bucks a month, you get the same uh, discount codes and early access, plus a month of shout-outs to your own product or show or offering, one free intro class, and share the load merch, which is TBD, uh, and I haven't, I haven't decided what it is yet, but it's coming soon. I'm trying to convince her to do cool t-shirts. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> the tiers get better from there. There's a $10 tier, a $50 tier, and a $100 tier. And right now, if you become a subscriber, you'll be helping me get a better microphone, which I hear is really important. It's real good. It's real good <laughs> for a podcast. Yeah, that's, that's what I hear. <laughs> All that's super cool. And if I didn't want to be a subscriber, which I am, uh, how else could one support the show? You can write a review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, which really helps direct other people to the show. It improves SEO, from what I understand. Um, you can also share about it on social media or share it directly with friends who you think would enjoy it. Yes, please share. <laughs> and we thank you for it. So I think we should start the show. All right, sounds good. host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Cameron Glover. Cameron is a certified sex educator and business coach for sexuality professionals. Through successful sex ed, she helps sexuality professionals to monetize their expertise and build online businesses. In addition, she also hosts the Sex Ed in Color podcast, centering the experience of sexuality professionals of color. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Mia. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm, uh, I can't complain. Um, surrounded by plants and cats. So I see <laughs> this is my, my set decoration. So it doesn't feel like you're in my bedroom. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's, let's jump right in. Um, my, my first question for you is, um, do you have what is your earliest uh, formative memory around understanding labor and the division of labor, um, whether that's in your family or in your friends or at school or anything like that? Probably when I was very young, too, like probably around the same time, um, this idea of labor being divided between genders um, was also very prominent. So even though both my parents worked, and there was this, I guess, 
an equal-ish like division of like child caring and like um you know labor in the workforce I do feel like it was disproportionately put on my mother because I think that um particularly in the black community there is like definitely an unequal divide of labor um and like thinking about black womanhood specifically a lot of like the history of the shaping around that is very much rooted in like doing everything and so this idea of um you have to be like both a mother and a parent and um excel at your job and like be the caretaker a lot of the connection between like defining what it means to be like a black woman I feel like is often rooted in this division of labor so like Hmm. being a parent and excelling at work and like caring for others is all like kind of lumped together and particularly like this idea of what it means to be a woman what it means to be a feminine person is very much shrouded around um caring for other people And I think that even from a very early age, like just seeing that a majority of the people that I did spend the most time around, right, but the the people that were (laughs) my biggest caretakers were disproportionately women in my life. They were my mother, my grandmother, my aunties, my my babysitters, right? Um, And even seeing disproportionately the difference in the expectations that I had versus what my brother had as older and like that division of labor turned into division of labor on the house too. So even though we were both like encouraged to of course go to school, get good grades, all that stuff, you know, there was a different expectation when it came to actually caring for the home and um, helping around the house and domestic kind of like chores even though we were both living there we both contributed to the house right this level of um expectation that I need to and I don't think it was done in a malicious way but just like you know there was more of a lax attitude around my brother not necessarily knowing how to wash dishes or do laundry or like doing those things and like kind of getting like applauded for kind of like the bare minimum of doing that whereas the expectation for me was like no you need to know how to do this and you need to know how to do it very early on so I I don't know I think like it it gets very tricky because it's like it's almost like having another feminist awakening like Mm. you don't know or you don't realize just how insidious it all is until you're looking back and it's just like oh okay yeah well this thing that you're talking about about like um, you know, that, that comes up with, um, with parenthood so often where like a, a man gets told that he's such a good dad or like a woman gets told that she's so lucky that her husband is willing to, you know, mm-hmm. do the things that she are assumed that she's going to do, um, for right. Like doing just barely above the least possible amount. Um, and it's interesting to hear that that even was showing up like in your childhood between you and your brother. Yeah, yeah. And even as we got older, even now, right, the, I see these, like, the ways that that has played in the expectations that my mother has for both of us now, too. So, like, this, um, like, my brother just graduated undergrad, and he's still, like, obviously, he's still at home with her um, and doing all of that. But there's definitely, like, more of a lax attitude, like, that level of expectation of, like, you're contributing 
like you're still contributing to the house in the sense that like you're helping me with things, you're doing errands, you're doing things to help maintain the status quo of the shared space that we have. But I just feel like it's just so different from like, even when I was still living at home, the expectations that were set for me to do. It was like, these are, it almost feels like these were my defined roles as a caretaker of the house. Uh, You know, a house that I share that like, I'm still doing these things because I need to, again, uphold the space that I'm sharing with you. But it's like a difference of expectation. Whereas like, I don't know, I feel like it's way more casual with my brother. And sometimes I'm like, do I want to point this out? Do I want to start an argument? (laughs) Or, you know, do I just like let this slide? But like, how is this also going to um, impact, you know, when my brother transitions into like being in a relationship with someone, right? When Mm -hmm. um, he moves out of the house, moves into his own space, moves into a space with a future partner, their future family dynamics. I think about that a lot, especially like as I'm in my own um, romantic dynamic with my partner and my living person (laughs) and just like the way that we navigate the division of labor in a household as well. Um, It's just something that I think about a lot and I feel like I'm not sure if there's as much evolution in that conversation as we as a society think that there is. Yeah. So when did, um, when did, like, when did money get introduced to the picture for you? <laughs> uh, again, like, probably around the same time. Like, I don't think, you know, we didn't use the words of, like, labor and money and stuff. But, yeah. like, these are all, now that I am looking at it and, like, you're asking these questions, I'm like, <laughs> these are all, like, super prevalent. So, like, mm-hmm. more specifically, um, I think money was more prevalent in my relationship with my father. Just, like, you know, again, spending like weekends with him and not necessarily um, spending the entire week with me. It was almost like, not like this double life, but like it was just different from like, there was like my everyday life and then like, oh, I'm going over to visit my dad kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though it was still regular and I saw him every single weekend and like, you know, had a semblance of normalcy over there. Um, but money was definitely introduced very early on in the sense of just like, I got a lot of material things, um, from him. Like, I don't know, my mom has this, like, I I cringe at this story now, but like, (laughs) just like tells these anecdotes of like, yeah, you had like a new Barbie every single weekend. And I think about like, yeah. And I'm just like, well, I definitely didn't. I did. (laughs) I did have a lot of toys growing up. And I, I did pretty much get, like, if I did ask for things, I got them very, like, frequently. But I think also the exchange of that um, in, like, what I had to, I guess, like, give up in order to get those things. Because it was very much a situation of, like, I'm getting a material thing to, like, um, ease, like, a sense of normalcy in our relationship. And like, I don't want to get, like, super into details about it, but my father was very sick um, for a very long time, and there was a lot of normalizing violence in my relationship with him, and just, like, his relationship with other people, and a lot of, um, you know, just, like, a lot of not great things that came along with that relationship, so I don't the way I cringe about that story is just, it's not because of, like, the reality of that, of, like, yes, I did get physical things, but, like, 
what is this teaching me about like my relationship with men? What is this teaching me about like the exchange of love as a currency, right? And how money plays a role in that. And it's definitely something I'm still unpacking, right? And still yeah. like um, working through. And I think that, yeah, that definitely had like a really big impact on like my viewing of money, even though it wasn't necessarily a monetary exchange that I had. But I just remember even being that young, feeling very guilty about money and feeling very um, like almost ashamed of myself for having nice things. Yeah. It's also making me think of like when you were talking about your mom making like not just working, but also being a single parent and then also managing, which what sounds like a superpower to me, (laughs) managing Mm -hmm. to like have time with the two of you, with you and your brother and make time with each of you separately. Like that Mm -hmm. is a form of emotional labor that is not monetized. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that being something that like made you, I mean, just the way that you were talking about it, like that, that there was clearly a lot of like gratitude and appreciation for that. And then it's interesting to hear that kind of on the other side, there was this um, like gift giving uh, way of demonstrating affection um, Mm -hmm. from, from your father. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about money because of the sales Mm -hmm. class that you did that I took. Um, And, and that class was so impactful for me because and I wasn't really expecting this, but it was really like a spiritual overhaul around money. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how, like what you're taught, like how, how did that sort of, how does that tie back to what you're talking about as kind of the seeds of this for you? Yeah. This relationship. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad that you got that out of the class. <laughs> I did. I <laughs> so did. much feedback. I'm just like, this is amazing. Like other people as well that took the master class were also like, you know, I'm still thinking about this three weeks later. This is well, incredible. and you saw me completely overhaul my Instagram. Yes, like I yes. was like, all right, I have to clarify. I have to get very, very specific about what it is that I do, who I am, and honestly, so much of actually what I was afraid about in terms of um of like of redoing my Instagram was about losing the. I was clinging desperately to these like 1600 followers that I had that Mm -hmm. had followed me through various like reinventions of myself. Like I used to be a ceramicist. So I had all these people Mm -hmm. following me who were artisans and, you know, like home decor shops. And it just, I was, I was afraid to lose those people when in fact, what I've seen is that now Instagram actually knows who I am so that it knows how to like show me to other people. And hmm. the people who are coming to my page are, are interacting with my stuff. Yeah. Um, and that really did come from, from your class. Like your class kicked me in the butt out of like this kind of um, this scarcity thing of like, oh, but I've like built this really measly following and like have to hold on to it. Um, and then the, the other thing that happened was that I realized that I was really afraid to, um, to like share. I was actually really scared about um, being like loud about what it is that I do and what I offer, largely because um, what it boiled down to was that I don't like I'm not a therapist, and mm-hmm. I don't I don't claim to be a therapist. But there was been this fear in my mind that like without that degree, I'm not legitimate. And so much of your class focused on 
this kind of this this notion that we need to be certified in order to be legitimate. Um, anyway, I completely took that question out of your mouth, but I just wanted to share it with you because that yeah. class really like really got me thinking and and really kicked me into into gear. So anyway, oh, I'm so so glad. Um, <laughs> Can you repeat the question for me? Yes, yes. (laughs) I wanted to tie in your current thoughts on money as something that we need to kind of spiritually and existentially overhaul for ourselves and like repair and rebuild that relationship. In I wanted to tie it back to these seeds of that relationship with money that Mm, you have from your childhood. Gotcha. Yeah, so I, and that's, where do I even start? Right. <laughs> I think I love the way that you frame this question because I don't, I I'm also going through a transition and like feeling a lot more comfortable in sharing my story. And I don't, you know, necessarily feel like I need to at this point go into super depth about like my father and like the abusive relationship that we had and like the impacts of that. Right. But the more that I do my own unpacking about money and what kind of like messages I got around money growing up and how that's carrying into my work now as a sex educator and as a business coach, like it's all so relevant. And I'm just like realizing like, wow, other people are like being held back from this too. So my approach for incorporating money mindset stuff, it's not like, it is never my place to say that people need to be making X level or X amount of money. And if you're not, then like that says something about you. Cause that's just playing into the same um, hierarchical oppressive system that we all live in. Like, I don't need to dive into that. Right. Like, and mm-hmm. I still like, I am also impacted by that as well. So who does that serve when I frame it in that way and just like shame people for like not being able to access things that um, were never like the way that the system was built. It was never like, built with them in mind to access in the first place. Like that's silly. So instead I really, I really want to approach um, money and abundance from a place of where can it be accessible for all of us and how can it be accessible for all of us in different ways and recognizing that and giving people again, the tools to be able to reach that, whatever it looks like for them. So for me specifically, it looks like having a six-figure plus business, right? It looks like being able to do work like this podcast, like Mm -hmm. the class that we took, like all the other digital products that I offer, right? Um, To be able to help guide sexuality professionals through this process, because that is something I feel really passionate about and like much like other industries as well, it's being led by non-men. And that means that we're carrying all our stuff into Mm. the work that we do. So there's a lot of like emphasis on the impact of the work that we do and the necessity of it and how much we're helping people and how great this is. And that's all wonderful. That's really like, it's so, so important. But as soon as we talk about money, as soon as we talk about like, what is the energetic exchange that you're getting for being able to do this work? All of a sudden, everybody clams up and it's super hard to talk about. And so I'm just really like, as I'm going along this journey and as I'm doing my own unpacking of all these different things that I've carried through different iterations of my life, going from a child and going from someone who thought, <laughs> I thought I was going to be in academia, right? Mm-hmm. And now transitioning into business coaching and having my first full year of business and like accomplishing so much, like there's still a lot of like 
childhood shit I'm carrying around that does not serve me. And it's not even like my own thoughts about money. And so like, for me, facilitating that conversation also keeps me accountable to show up for how this looks like in my own life and interrogate like, is this is this mine or is it bullshit? And is it something that I even like want to carry, right? And again, going back to the ultimate goal of like, what does abundance look like for me? And how can I show up um, in different ways when I have more of it in my life? And for me, that looks like um, being having security and being able to show up and be more generous to the people that I help and also like the people in my personal life. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm also, I'm trying to, I think, to kind of jump off of that, I think this idea of like um, looking at money as uh, what it what it enables you to do, like the impact mm-hmm. of that money, um, and rather like rather than looking at it as you know dollars and zeros in your bank account, and and thinking about it more in terms of like what does this what does this do for my life? Um, mm-hmm. That 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 shift has really changed for me in the last couple months, um, especially being out of, out of work essentially, and kind of putting together this online school basically Mm -hmm. is what I ended up doing. I like didn't set out to do that. And that's kind of what has happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, and looking at it, like this is, this is very much aligned with what my values are. Um, and being able to think in terms of, of I, what did, I don't remember exactly what you said, but to think about selling as an offer or an invitation um, mm-hmm. and get rid of that kind of icky sales marketing thing that we have around, um, you know, trying to make money, but rather like, what does it allow me to do? What does mon- having money allow me to do? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a bunch of stuff to say on that. So first of all, as you were talking to, it's so interesting because I think that most people aren't even like used to thinking about like, what can I do with money? It's first of all, the focus is on like the lack of it. It's on yeah. the tumbleweeds in the bank account. <laughs> <laughs> the tumbleweeds in the bank account. Or like, it's on the lack. It's like, I don't have right. enough. I don't make enough, you know, and that's where a lot of like stress comes in. That's like thinking about my own childhood too, just like a definite, I never needed for anything, but things that I wanted, you know, we didn't have. <laughs> and like very much like feeling the impacts of that from, um, and being aware of that scarcity from a very young age definitely impacted the way that I kind of moved through the world. And like, even in smaller ways that we think that don't have that big of an impact, but like, for me, it kind of looked like, you know, being curious about trying different things, but not wanting to because I didn't want to add more financial strain on my parents or um, wanting to go on a trip, but knowing that like, I wasn't sure I'd be able to afford it. Or like, I have this memory when I was 16, um, I did like a, like an internship at a summer camp and I needed hiking boots because we would go on an eight day hike. Um, And I just remember being so, so embarrassed and frustrated and angry because I um my dad needed to help me get these damn boots and he we went to the store and like he tried to get me like construction boots and I just remember feeling this immense amount of shame because I'm like trying to explain to him like I I cannot like I need the hiking boots but because he was so much like 
they're expensive. You're only going to use them one time. No, we're going to like try and compromise with this. And I just remember feeling so like deeply ashamed and like going to the summer camp without those boots. And like, thankfully, thank God, there was somebody in my group that had the same like um, size shoe as me. And her group went on like the hiking thing like before us. So basically she was like, you can borrow mine. But like that deep sense of shame, like not leaving me because I'm just like the compromise, like this compromise will not work. <laughs> like this right. compromise will like leave me with a broken ankle. Yeah. If I should like do this. <laughs> but like how that impacts a lot of us too, of like not having enough and trying to make do with what we have. And because a lot of the way that we talk about abundance is very much rooted in classism and oppression, it leaves like it leaves out those that cannot like meet that level, meet that standard. Like we feel less than, and it's not us as a system. So it's just like, I don't know. I think there's so, so, so much to this conversation that I don't know if we'll be able to even scratch the surface, but I just like, I think it's really important to start talking about it, right? And start normalizing these experiences because we've all had situations where we feel less than, where we feel not great, but that can also be really valuable information for how we want to move forward. And kind of tying it back to um, the work that I do specifically with clients around like selling and creating digital offers as well. Um, everybody has, everybody knows how they don't want to be sold to because we've mm-hmm. all been sold to in a way that like does not resonate. Right. And I think in the class I talked about like the mall kiosk with oh, like, yeah. yeah, with like the straighteners or whatever. And they're just like hounding you to like try and touch your hair. And you're like, I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. <laughs> like yeah. we know what, what it looks like when we vehemently, vehemently, do not want something right and like it's still being forced upon us but what does it look like when we're being sold to in a way that resonates and I think that um holds a lot of people up as well so I'm wondering as you're saying that I'm thinking like I feel like the ways that I've been sold to that feel good I almost don't realize that I'm being sold to exactly yeah and that's the point like it shouldn't feel like you're being sold to it should feel like a collaboration an invitation a like it should feel like you're not being pushed to do something by another person, but like you are just as much actively in the process as they are. That's what it should feel like. And we're being yeah. it's interesting because we are sold to like every day, right? If we listen to, even if we listen to podcasts that have ads in them, right? It's like, that's a form of marketing. If we're scrolling yeah, on Instagram. I am never going to use Audible. I am just never yeah. going to use Audible. <laughs> I keep being told that it's the best thing in the world and it's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And that's like part of it too. It's both like, is this offer relevant for me? Is it something that I asked for? Is it something that is um, pertinent to like, the problem that I have in my life. Right. And for some people, Audible is great because like their problem is just like, they want to read and they want the convenience of being able to do other things, yada, yada. But for other people, maybe they're like, I want to dedicate more time to reading and I want to sit down and do it. And maybe an audiobook isn't the solution for that. So it makes sense that like Audible wouldn't resonate for them. Right. So there's different levels to it, but I think like a deeper level if you're in like a kind of service-based industry or like if you create offers of some kind to work with people, starting to shift the thinking of selling from something that you need to do and it needs to be super aggressive all the time and instead moving it towards like 
something that is collaborative, like how can selling be rooted in being of service goes Mm -hmm. a really, really long way. I'm imagining this, like this visual of like, if I have something, you know, if we're both this far apart and I have something to offer, what I'm doing is I'm like taking one step toward the other person and then like waiting there and then Mm -hmm. waiting for them to take one step toward the middle to me too, rather than being like, all the way at the other person being like, don't you want this thing? Don't you want this thing? Uh And then not letting them, like you want to be able to give people the space to come to you so that it feels like they are equally participating in the action. Yeah. And it also takes a level of empathy um, as well. And like, just knowing how to like interact with people. (laughs) Like I'm laughing because I'm just like, I don't think that a lot of people connect that to like necessarily being a good salesperson, but you have to be, you have to understand where people are coming from and like understand how to interpret what they're saying with other cues or other tools to be able to decipher like, okay, do I, do I actually have like the right tools to be able to help and support them in the ways that they're saying that they need? Right. So I'm thinking about like, um, you know, I interact a lot with potential clients over DMs. Right. So, and I think there's like a big difference even with like DM selling, which again could be like its own thing. Right. But yeah. there's a difference between like, for me at least, like part of the strategy that I use is that I have very clear constraints about how I'm interacting with people via DMs, like period. So like, I, I will never be like, Hey, um, like this, uh, I don't know, like this post. And then like, I like every single person that likes that post, I will never send like a copy and paste spam like message to them being like, Hey, buy this thing. Mm -hmm. Like, no. (laughs) And in fact, I feel like it resonates a lot deeper for people when there's very clear constraints. So like what I've done recently, um, has been like, I'll make a post and then like in one of the lines, like towards the end, I'll have like a key word or something that people need to put in their message to me and they need to message me. I'm not going to message them first about it, but they need to put some kind of like keyword or emoji or like something to indicate that like they read that post. And like, that is what they're specifically DMing me for that thing. And that also feels very collaborative as well, because that's kind of like what you were talking about of meeting in the middle of like, I'm here. I have this thing that can potentially be very useful for you. Or I want to have a conversation to like, make sure that it is right but I want to get your consent first I want to make sure that like this is actually something that you want to talk about because you can also see people that could very much benefit from whatever it is that you're selling right but like that doesn't mean that they're ready to receive it it doesn't mean that they want to receive it or like what whatever is going on in their lives right so I think that like making it collaborative is super important because yeah you want you don't want, what am I trying to say? You want to meet people where they're at. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's like a big like thing that gets overlooked when it comes to just interacting with people in general and having a business online. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon subscribers and by me. I teach boundary and consent classes on Zoom on a sliding scale. The classes offer a framework for the practice of consent and finding and communicating your boundaries. I've been told that these classes can give you more options for how to express yourself and even make more space for creativity. 
I've added two classes for next month. One is for actors, where I'll be talking about how you can advocate for yourself on a set and what your rights are. And one for directors, which will cover how to talk to actors and intimacy coordinators about sex scenes, as well as some gender and sexuality sensitivity training. You can find me by my name, Mia Schachter, on Instagram and sign up for classes through the link in my bio. I also offer one-on-one -on -one embodied boundary sessions. I'll let one of my clients, Aphomia, share her experience with you. Doing boundaries and consent work with Mia has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I remember when I began this work with her earlier this year, I was terrified. I didn't really know what to expect and was scared that I was going to make a fool of myself. And I'm so glad that I went because it's nothing like that. One of the most powerful things Mia ever said to me was that doing this work gives you the ability to understand yourself and to then give the gift to others to not cross your boundary. And it's been so rewarding and so amazing. And I've literally recommended her to everyone I know. She's a remarkable person. And the work is so individualized that I truly believe that everyone can get something out of it. Thank you, Aphomia, for that glowing testimonial. <laughs> you can contact me about those private sessions through the link in my bio as well. And on with the show. So you've now said, you've mentioned the energetic exchange of money. So that is like the, if I'm imagining like physical money, I'm imagining the energetic exchange being like the aura field yeah. around that physical money. And, and I'm also thinking about this idea of people being ready to receive and what you talk about in terms of like changing your vibration and then being ready for things to come to you that are matching that vibration. So what that's making me want to ask is um, what, so obviously you can't just like sit in your room and think uh, I'm ready to make six figures. Like why isn't this happening? Easy. What? I wish it was that easy. Oh yeah, that would be great. But, yeah. but actually I think that if it were that easy, then once you had it, you wouldn't be ready for it in a certain mm -hmm. sense. Cause there wouldn't have been like the work done to kind of shift, you know, like you in a way. Um, mm -hmm. but so can you talk, can you speak a little bit to the, 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 maybe the, the actual work that it takes, um, to shift that vibration and then call those things into you? Yeah. So I want to talk first a bit more about the energetics of money. Okay. So like, and let me like clarify that. Cause I think that it's, <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that money has an aura. Um, <laughs> like I'm trying to like picture that also. And I'm like, what color would it be? Purple. But, like, <laughs> but sort of, like, maybe, especially if folks are listening to this and they're like, whoa, this like took a turn down the <laughs> lane. I was not ready for this. Right. So when I talk about the energetics of money, I'm very much rooting it in a sense that money itself is a tool. If money was just like a picture, like a $20 bill, just like sitting on your bed or your couch or whatever, just laying there, not doing anything, just sitting there. It's, there's no emotion to it. There's no nothing. It's just, it's an object that is just there in front of you. Right. But it's now when it's in the hands of people, that's where the energetic exchange comes from. And it gets charged by the way that we use it, the way that we think about it. Right. So whether we're like creating more of it, whether we're ashamed that we have it, whether we're surprised that we, we found it, you know, in, in the pockets of laundry or something, mm -hmm. right? And like that, that good feeling, um, opening up a birthday card from a relative or for a loved one and like seeing that crisp dollar bill in there, right? Like 
those feelings of joy, like all of that comes from us. And extending that even further, those energies, I really get amplified in the ways that we use it. So whether, you know, we're going grocery shopping and it's like, oh, I really like, I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough. And then you find like the amount that you need in the corner of your wallet, right? Or if a stranger like were just some for you, right? Like different ways that like people can use money. And for me, I started really thinking about this because I did a, um, I did a live stream on my Instagram a few weeks ago at this point. And that really just started getting me thinking about all this because someone had asked if they could donate to me. And I, yeah, and I got really um, like charged by that. Like even after the live stream, I was just like pacing around my house and I was like really grumpy. And I was like, I don't understand like why I'm like, where is this coming from? I was in a great mood. And I really like came back to the fact that I was really off put by the fact that this person asked to donate to me. Because to me, donation is something that is um, like, it's it's a tool that like, is best for people that are in need and I'm not someone that's in need. Right. So I'm thinking very much that I'm someone that like, I have my own business, like this is how I operate and I don't use a donation based model in my business. Um, But it also reminded me that like the energetics of money and standing behind it also means that I need to be firm in the boundaries that I have about receiving money as well. And so like not all money is good money. (laughs) And if it doesn't feel good for me to receive money in a particular way, then I can say that. I can say, you know, I don't really feel good receiving money in this way. Can you instead direct it in this way? Mm -hmm. And so I did that kind of on a live stream where I was just like, you know, I don't really like doing a donation-based model. I'd much rather you purchase my digital products um, and support my business that way. But it made me really, really realize Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I needed to make a stand about like what energetically felt good for me as well. So just like moving forward, like I don't, I don't do a donation based model for me. I think that it's much better used um, paying forward. But if folks want to support me individually, that like purchasing my digital products, that is like the, the energetic exchange that I like to receive money in and that is the boundary that I have around receiving money as well because yeah it's just like very not great (laughs) and so I think that that's really important as well it's not just like what does money feel like for me but also like what is the energy that I'm putting behind whatever action I'm using money for and how does that make me feel and interrogating that how does it make me feel part and realizing that you can shift that like you can actually like it's okay to like not want to feel bad about money all the time it's okay to not like (laughs) no one wants to feel bad about things all the time like you deserve to feel good and it's your like it is your right to feel good in as many ways as possible so like why not you know shift if you can and if there's ways that you can like shift using money and having boundaries that better support how you want to be feeling then you owe it to yourself to shift towards that Yeah. You know, what you're getting at is making me think about, um, like this scarcity abundance Mm -hmm. paradigm where like, if, if you're living in a space of scarcity, then if someone offered to make a donation, you'd be like, yeah, money is money. Right. Mm -hmm. But being in that abundant space, you're able to check in with 
the energetics of the money and how it makes you feel because mm-hmm. you're not, um, you're not simply interested in money for money's sake as that $20 bill laid out on your bed, like piece of paper kind of thing. You're interested in money that feels good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And my, like, and again, I just want to acknowledge like where I'm coming from is not to shame anyone where they're at, but my, my hope and my like passion in doing this work and really talking about this is because I truly do think that we deserve more than just survival. Like we deserve to do more than just like get by. And I think a lot of talk around like abundance and scarcity, it's still very much rooted in that paradigm of um, either you're just getting by or like you're greedy and like your humanity is lost or something. And I think that there can be that balance. And I want to really like encourage people to just like explore what that balance looks like for you and like realizing that like you are not a bad person for not wanting to feel like you're playing Russian roulette with your money every month because you're like, I don't know how I'm going to like have my needs met. Like that is not, that's not healthy um, to be, to continuously put yourself in a space of just like survival like that. And again, beyond like, I'm not talking to people that like have to be rooted in survival for whatever means necessary. Right. Because survival is very much real. And like, that's a reality for many people, especially right now as we're recording, but beyond that, right. What, what does it even look like beyond that? And I think that's a really powerful political revolutionary statement to make. Um, And even thinking about, especially for marginalized communities, especially for communities of color and especially, especially (laughs) for the black community, like so much of, how we've been conditioned to think about like community and history and our own people and our own like celebration of who we are is still rooted in scarcity. And I think that we can do so much more than that. We've had like these moments of moving past that, but I think that we deserve more. And that's part of, again, like why I think it's so important to have these conversations as well. Like we deserve more than just the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah, the I just saw this really chilling video a woman like speaking before the Senate about how, you know, sh- making $40,000 a year is not a living wage and f- the and senators get $40,000 a year um for furniture. Mm. <laughs> That's their budget for furniture. That's ridiculous. I I know. Yeah. And that also goes back to like what I was saying too about the action and how that shapes the energetic exchange as well, because there are like your money, your money status, right. Does not determine whether or not you're a good person. Like money truly doesn't give a fuck (laughs) whether you are a good person or not. And I think that's like, that's also a really big like shift for a lot of people. One of my coaches, she like, in one of our sessions, she had mentioned, like, you know, they're assholes that, like, make their, like, they hit their money goals consistently. So it's not even about, oh, like, yeah. your, like, I don't know whether you are good or bad. Like, it's just, no. I almost think <laughs> there's an inverse there. Like, it's easier really for is. people who don't care about their moral compass to make more money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I when I think, too, about, like, doing this work and talking more about abundance and what that can look like and making sure that more good people have the money that yeah. they want to make, like, think about how much different the world would be if, like, we could do that. If, like, 
more people who are conscious about like the distribution of wealth and the inequity in our world. We're able to fund movements. We're able to actually give money to the causes that they want in a bigger way. Because a lot of my friends too that like, you know, um, may are still like very much rooted in like survival mode, still make that effort of like, I still make a budget every month to donate X amount of my income to different causes and different things like that. How much would things shift if like we had like more abundance to be able to do that on a bigger scale, right? Right. And like more people would be able to do that. Like the world would change literally. And so like, I think that it is very much like it's, it's a political radical revolutionary thought both to like be a good person and like to integrate social justice and integrate all these different things for the sake of like just being an empathetic person and sharing space in the world with other people. But also we all, we owe it to ourselves to like think about what abundance can look like so that we can show up in different ways. And maybe for some people like doing their part in the movement is funding the movement. Right. For some people, like their part in playing that role is to just like bail out folks and like donate to bail out funds or to keep independent presses alive so that they're able to like journalists can like do reporting and don't have to worry about like um, having their light shut off, you know, or just like whatever it is that you want to do with money, like being able to be generous and be more rooted in service and to give more, like you're able to do that way easier when you're not stressed about like having your basic needs met. Right. Right. Yeah. Whenever, whenever you're acting out of a place of when, when all you're trying, like all of your energy is focused on surviving. Yeah. It's, it's hard to be creative and um, Mm. in, in service and, and all of those things that we really want, you know, it's hard to be innovative too. Like it's hard to, um, I'm just thinking in terms of like people who are doctors and people who are artists and people who are scientists. Like if you are preoccupied with survival, you are not innovating and thinking and generating at, at Mm -hmm. your highest potential. Yeah. Yeah. And then even on a bigger scale too, of like, from the business owner perspective, part of what motivates me for hitting these like numbers, it's not even just about like having my needs met, but it's also like, how am I going to be able to like create more opportunity for people that look like me in this space as well? Mm-hmm. That takes money. Right. <laughs> I want to be able to like, not just pay people, but like support them through different things. And like, part of that is like both like the bare minimum for me to be able to do that is paying someone a full salary. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's also like what other kind of like support and mentorship could I help provide? And like, that's something that like money can provide for us as well. That is like very much good. Like that's very much like something to celebrate. So again, just like starting to think beyond just like that bare minimum and like, what do I need to survive? But like, what do you need to thrive? What does abundance look like for you individually? Yeah, that's freedom spiritually. Mm -hmm. Um, So before I get to my wrapping up question, I wanted to ask you about how you, how you protect your own energy because so much of what you do is um 
is an energetic exchange or a knowledge exchange. And, and I think that those boundaries get really fuzzy for people, especially around mm-hmm. emotional labor. Um, and something that really struck, struck me about you when, when we were working together was that um, I'm, I am not a very organized person. So I really screw up like I communicate with someone here and here and here, and then I don't remember where the thing I said and the thing that I need to look up. And that's something that I'm really working on. And, um, and that came up for, for us. And you mm-hmm. just like very gently asked me to like keep it all in one place. And I think I might've even screwed it up again. And, <laughs> and I had to like really check in and be like, okay, I, this is not just like, uh, screwing me up. I'm now, this is like affecting other people. And like, I really had to consider that. So I wanted to ask you about how, how you maintain those boundaries for yourself, um, in your work. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because <laughs> I love boundaries. Like, <laughs> I think that I'm very good at boundaries. I'm very good at telling people no, or I don't know, or I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> and I don't feel any like um, I've gotten to the point where I don't feel bad about that anymore because I think of boundaries as guidance for how I need to be cared for in different capacities. Yes, I love and that. And so for me, like it is like first of all, it's a privilege to like even know my boundaries, right? Because I I just feel like you know if you're upset about someone stating their boundaries about things like that that's not healthy. And that also says a lot more about you than it says about that person. Oh yeah. You may need to interrogate. Um, but especially because like, like you said, a lot of all of my work is client focused, like right. and majority of it is online. So I have to, ha- I have to establish very strong boundaries for myself to be able to just like get everything that I need to get done. Cause right now it's very much, um, a one person show <laughs> mm-hmm. with, um, with, with everything that I'm doing at the moment. So I have to be very organized and very on top of things. I have so many spreadsheets, like, so Me many, spreadsheets. very color coded schedule. And these are just like bare minimum things that help me get through the work day. And outside of that, um, I'm getting a lot better with my personal boundaries too, because I'm fantastic with business boundaries. But when it comes to personal boundaries, like, I've definitely been impacted by, um, by COVID and just like having a hard time separating, you know, the fact that I'm different now being at home all the time and being confined there versus like being an introvert and being a homebody before. <laughs> things right. Went down. Choice. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for me, like a big thing that I am working on is I'm having a lot stricter um, digital boundaries for myself because I'm just having a lot of digital overload at the moment. So I have a set time every night where I get off social media and then by another time, like I'm off all electronics, like period. And really being firm with, you know, here are the things that I like consume for work or for personal development and having very like, and having a confined time in the day that like I have for that is super helpful because then that leaves me a lot more time and room for other things that I want to do, like spending time with my partner or cooking together or even just having personal time, right? And taking time off. And so I think that it's like, as we're talking about all of this, like boundaries are so, so important because it's 
it's guidance on me to be cared and supported for. And it's just like, it helps everyone um, understanding what those boundaries are and being able to communicate that is so important. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, those digital boundaries. I really, I like, I'm really struggling with that lately. And, and I feel it like a compulsion. Mm-hmm. It feels like an addiction. It, it, it feels, is. It, it is. feels like this thing in my head where I'm like, you don't need to do that right now. You're really, mm-hmm. you don't need to, don't do that right. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then I do it anyway. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm working on it. You're, it in, you're like re-inspiring me. Yay. <laughs> and it, like, it sneaks up on you too. Like it's very, yeah. like uh, a thing that's coming up for a lot of folks as well is like, the way that comparison Ugh. like plays into digital consumption or digital overconsumption. And like, I had a, an email to my email list last week that a lot of people were like, get out of my head, <laughs> but also thank you because I talked about um, like three things that you can do in your sexuality business. And the third tip that I gave was um, getting out of the other person's bag. Yes. And basically what I mean by that is like, we all have those people that we kind of like know of in our industry. And we're just like, I don't, I don't necessarily like this person, but I follow them anyway. Right. Or Mm -hmm. like, I don't really like, they do something similar to me and they bring up not so great feelings that, you know, are very much yours, but like this person kind of like, uh, activates that in you. And that's totally fine. Like that's human. Everybody has those people. I have those people. Right. But I also know for me, a boundary is that like, I don't need to look at their sales page. I don't need to see, I don't need to be following them. First of all, I don't need to follow them on if they make me feel not good. Like, and I'm not a bad person for muting people or restricting them or even unfollowing people that I like. Right. Like that's first of all. And then there's also like the comparison game that like a lot of sex educators and a lot of business coaches fall into as well of like, well, this person does something super similar to me. So I need to see what they're doing on their sales page or I need to like, for their class or their service or something and like with the intention of like sometimes stealing their content even unintentionally right and other times like waiting to be inspired by their content and that's very much rooted in comparison and it's not healthy and so like basically in this email I talked about that and like part of like that digital consumption and having those boundaries also is knowing that you are more than enough and that there's room for all of us. And so what that means is like, you don't need to look at what this other person is doing to validate the ideas, like, and the things that are coming in your head. And for a lot of people, I think that comparison in like doing these things is a way to kind of like legitimize their thoughts that they aren't enough. So by looking at this person's like, sales page or seeing how many followers they have right mm-hmm. or just like you're you're looking for evidence to like uphold the idea the belief that you have that you're not enough and that you will never be enough in doing what Whoa. you're doing oh and Cameron so, that was a you just like <laughs> dropped a bomb it I mean it's real though it's no, so reinforcing real. that narrative for mm-hmm. yourself like you're looking for proof that your that your inner critic is correct yeah yeah and that's I talked about this in the master class too of like we have whatever we believe you'll find evidence for if I believe right. the sky is orange and <laughs> clouds are made out of turkeys like I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna find evidence somewhere somehow even if I make it up myself that that is true and it's the same thing for all the other beliefs that we have so when people say 
and they truly do believe that like money is bad i'll never make enough who am i to have this thing right rich people are evil what does that say about like our beliefs like deep down in our core and in our subconscious right and so the effect of that is also in the actions that we take in the things that we consume that validate these ideas to be true whether on a conscious or a subconscious level and that's just that's just the reality of it so yeah if you take nothing else away mm-hmm. <laughs> i hope that resonated for people too just like you will find evidence for whatever it is that you believe in and so like this need to like compare and like hate follow or like whatever just like if you don't resonate with something don't indulge in it just don't like stand by your boundaries because those boundaries are enough. And like, that's that you said what you said. I love that. Um, all right. We got to wrap up (laughs) (laughs) Um, in, in closing. Um, Mm Can you share three of your most formative influences? So whether that's people, experiences, relationships, jobs, pieces of media, Uh, Mm -hmm. books, movies, albums, whatever, that you think are, um, like, brought you to exactly this moment in your life, whether they shaped your thinking or who you are or whatever, yeah. Okay, so um, (laughs) I'm going to be super cheesy, and we're just going to go with it, so I definitely want to see my mom, like, uh, for many, many reasons, but one thing that I think really helped me was that I was I was a very strange kid when I was younger. I was very weird. But um and I say that lovingly, um, lovingly to my inner child. But she never like discounted my ideas. And like I've tried a lot of things that did not stick that I'm looking back on and I'm just like, what was I thinking? And she her reaction to that was never like, no, you can't do this or like th- whatever reason. It was like, okay we'll figure out a way to do this. And so I think that like that encouragement definitely helped me to gain a lot of confidence. And like, that's pretty much how like I've built like my business, like up to this point, I'm just like, I'm going to try some shit and see if it works. And I really do think that that, um, like that encouragement and like never really feeling like too weird or too like whatever to try this thing really did help that. Um, so I just, I love her so much, but especially for that. Um, let's see what else. Um, so anime wise, cause I, this is something I don't get to talk about a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love anime and definitely I think Sailor Moon has impacted my life in a lot of ways. Just like, uh, it's such a good story. And it's just like, when you really, really think about it, like at its core, Sailor Moon, I think encompasses these things that are innately ours, like the qualities that we have inside us are our biggest strengths. And for Usagi specifically, that means friendship. That means upholding a lot of these boundaries that we talked about too, because she's very much like someone that is not going to fight and she doesn't fight. Like she's not, she's not a violent person. And like the moments where it really counts for her to stand up and like literally face evil in like the face of like the catastrophe of the world. Like she's very much like, I'm going to do this my way. So how am I going to make it so that we all walk out of here alive? And like, I, I don't know. I think there's a real strength in that as well. And it's just impacting me in a lot of ways. Um, and just helped me to feel a lot less alone in like, 
a lot of different ways. I don't know. I could I could go on, but definitely Sailor Moon. <laughs> I think I got to check in with Sailor Moon. Yes, it's, it's so good. I mean, like the original Crystal, like whichever. They're both fantastic, <laughs> but they're both very good. And lastly, the thing that's popping up in my head um, specifically is Toni Morrison's Sula. I just, it's my favorite Toni Morrison novel. And I think that she's just like an incredible writer, an incredible person in the way that she has been able to like carve out, like carve out like her own like strength of self and also like I'm gonna create this life doing this thing that other people say I can't do um and just stand by that is something that I'm just endlessly inspired by and Sula specifically like every every Toni Morrison book I feel like I read like if I read it more than once I just feel like I get new things out of it and yeah her wisdom is just like endless so I just like encourage people to read that you can find Cameron on Instagram at the Cameron Glover, C-A-M-E-R-O-N-G-L-O-V-E-R. You can follow her business page, which is coming soon at Successful Sex Ed. And you can follow her podcast at Sex Ed in Color. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing help. And to Tyler Field for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com with questions or comments. If you find these episodes enriching or educational, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash share the load. Thank you, Cameron. This was so nice and fun. It was really nice to see you again. It's yes, been a little it, while this since is so I've... great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for doing this with me. You're welcome. Mm-hmm.